Today, the impact of coronavirus on the food chain. Millions of people in Zimbabwe are short of food and clean water. Grocery stores are working to uh, juggle unprecedented demand. The case food system has come under greater pressure than at any time in living memory. Food prices have trebled since the virus was found in Sudan. No Hello and welcome back. In the last episode, we heard how the reclaiming and revival of traditional wisdom and practices in the indigenous community of Tharaka, Kenya, is helping locals to become more resilient in food, seed, community and their livelihoods, while strengthening their local biodiversity. And this story of Tharaka is a part of a growing movement in Africa. The interconnectivity of life is central to many cultural understandings around the world and traditionally would be reflected in the farming and social practices. Over the last few years, an increasing number of communities in the region of Bikita in Zimbabwe have joined this movement to reclaim their lost traditions and with it, their understanding of the inherent interconnection between themselves, their seeds, their land and the world spaces that surround them. Born and raised in Bikita, and now an Earth Practitioner and Programme Director at EarthLaw, a South African-based charity, Method Gundiza has accompanied these rural communities on their journey of revival. He sees this work as essential for navigating climate change and defending land against growing threats from mining and industrial exploitation. Unfortunately, like we heard in Kenya in the last episode, Zimbabwe is also threatened by global seed corporations, influencing farmers to intensively grow maize on monocultures which means cultivating only one variety of crop, with high chemical inputs. Seeing the damage this has caused to the land, the health of the people and their food security, Method and the communities he is working with have put the revival of seed diversity at the centre of their work. But the region of Bikita has become increasingly prone to climatic shocks over the years, struggling with intense droughts and tropical storms like Cyclone Ida that flooded the area last year and killed and displaced thousands of people across East Africa. Just a heads up, Method was in South Africa with intermittent internet connection at the time of interview, so sorry for the bad quality in parts. From the period of the lockdowns in late March, that is harvest time in Bikita. And we have been gathering uh, stories from farmers since the lockdown period. And the, the common narrative coming through all these stories is one of farmers having lost uh, some of their seeds that they had recovered uh, and some of them got these seeds from the seed fairs that we had last year uh, locally in Bikita and also nationally when some of the farmers went to Harare. It was a drought situation because the rains were very erratic and all the farmers we have been talking to have indicated that they didn't have this maize. So that's a big challenge in terms of new varieties that had been lost, that had now been recovered, but have now been lost to drought again. You know, this is where we say that the more diversity we bring into the farmer's field, the more resilient the farmer becomes. With all the farmers who were telling the story of not having had any maize uh, harvest this season, 
all of them kept saying, but I got something from my millet crop. I got something from my groundnuts, from my cowpeas. So while they, they speak about a loss of uh, crop of another type, they talk about a mitigation by another crop. And uh, these are some of the resilient uh, strategies and uh, ways that these farmers are seeing and experiencing that certainly by being diverse on the field, the farmer gets cushioned. The work that Method in these communities have done to revive the diversity of locally adapted seed varieties and build on their local food systems means that they have started to become more resilient in the face of these shocks and reclaim many aspects of their traditional culture that centre around their seeds and farming land. The most important seed in this journey of revival has been millet. Millet is at the very core of uh, life in, in the Gita. And uh, it's unfortunate that uh, in, the, in the past uh, few decades, this uh, seed and crop had actually gone on a disappearing path. So within the millet family itself, you know, like pale millet has got like seven varieties. Uh, finger millet has like three, four varieties. It's a very, very critical uh, seed in that place. Firstly, it's very drought tolerant. So as I've said, in very bad uh, seasons, even like this year, you will find that farmers do not lose completely. Number one. Number two, it's not a heavy feeder. So even in poor soils, it will still give you something. And this is a common thing in Bikita, which worries everyone. The soils are so poor. They have been tilled for years and years. And the use of fertilizer has exacerbated this problem. And to grow heavy feeder crops like maize, even in situations where the rains are good enough, still the harvest isn't as good. Millet is tolerant because it isn't a heavy feeder. So that's the second point. The third point is that, you know, uh, entertainment life in the village is around traditional beer. And traditional beer is not brewed uh, from maize, it's from millet. This is either finger millet, this is pale millet, which can be mixed with a bit of uh, sorghum. Entertainment in the village revolves a lot around traditional beer, you know, where people can play drums, play music on the radios while they relax and drink beer. And this is all about millet. We're talking about uh, food for the young children, the babies, porridge for the babies, which is from uh, finger millet, the brown one. Talking about the sick, who those who have become very, very sick, their food goes back to thin, thin porridge of finger millet. 
and we are talking about uh, at this point this is something that actually came through one of the stories about a young woman in Vikita who was saying one can begin to see the change in diet of people on a day-to-day basis each time people gather it is becoming common to see the brown pup and the gray pup brown is to finger millet the gray is to pearl millet and she was telling that story to say this is what we are beginning to see now because of the proliferation of millet again and uh, pearl millet is used to feed cows in the dry periods so after harvest stock of finger millet and pearl millet is taken away from the field and stored to be fed to the animals in the dry season when there's no food. That saves a dual purpose. Number one, feed the cows. Number two, when the rains come, the, the stalks of the, of the millet uh, crop actually act as like a cushion or um, what can I call it? something that absorbs water and therefore sucks water away from the surface of the crop so it keeps it almost dry and so it doesn't become too wet and then it decomposes to become manure and it goes back to the field. The traditional way of growing, harvesting, storing and processing millet is at the core of both their cultural practice and food sovereignty but there is a key element missing. When I was in Bikita in February this year, the last week of February, and uh, we were in a meeting with uh, the chief of Chirorwe and all the village headmen and the elders there, one of the things that came up in that dialogue was that people noticed that a particular storage facility two types in fact one called tapi where you harvest millet and store it temporarily before threshing and winnow and one called dura where you store it uh, at the homestead now you store the processed grain that this infrastructure is not visible in the community anymore now what that means is that People have lost their capacity to feed themselves because if they can't harvest enough to store, as they say, and they use a term called masunda chandu in the local language, which means just enough to take us through winter. That means harvesting food by 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 mid June to last you until about August when winter is over. The community observes how they have lost the capacity to sustain themselves. Food sovereignty isn't there. The community recognizes how much they have to buy food. And from my perspective, I would say that 
food sovereignty from that context is when one has a dura at their homestead. A dura is a local name for the granary. When there is no granary at home, you are not secure. In the local language, I'm translating this. It's, it's like I'm thinking in the local language and translating it, saying, no dura, no food sovereignty. <laughs> because the dura is the storage for food. It has compartments of seed. So the disappearing of that structure tells you that people don't have enough seed anymore. And accordingly, they don't have enough food anymore. Okay. So I think that I'm speaking from the perspective of the community that food sovereignty is when, as before, communities save their own seeds to plant in the next season. Communities harvest enough to store, as the elders say, for at least two years. And when you have that, the elders say, then you are at the liberty of resting in another season and not even choose to plant and work on the field. And when you rest, your land also rests. But you can't rest. Neither nor your land rest if you haven't got enough because you have to work it every year. When you work the land every year, you deplete it. This is the understanding. It, it's, it's from all angles, actually. But this is an ongoing journey of revival. And while they still have a way to go to achieve true food sovereignty, bit by bit, community practices and ceremonies are coming back. One of the social gatherings that revolve around millet is a, a ceremony called uh, the, the ceremony of threshing and winnowing. To thresh and to winnow the millet. This is about a day's work that brings all members of the community to one family. And that in itself is uh, one of the examples of a situation where communities come together and work together. This wasn't a thing that you could see anymore. Five years ago, they couldn't do that anymore. Why? Why? Because it, it wasn't being grown as extensively. Those few families that were still resilient and growing it were now growing less and less even if they grew more of it, they shared almost half half with the beds. So there wasn't any justification for bringing so many people to come and do threshing and winnowing. So that had been lost. And last year, after the seed fair in Bikita, we went to one of the farmers in Chirogwe and uh, we experienced the threshing and winnowing, a whole day process from sunrise to sunset, we were there. 
enjoying every moment, but working every moment. It's those kinds of ceremonies that one couldn't see anymore. This ceremony examples the interconnectivity between the community, the sea, their land and the wild landscapes around them, demonstrating a way of living that is based in symbiosis and the recognition of the importance of protecting wild space as a part of their food systems. This is a ceremony where men go onto the mountains to harvest the threshing sticks. And these come from particular types of trees. Not every tree can be harvested for, for millet threshing sticks. The winnowing is done by specific winnowing baskets that are made from a particular type of tree, commonly known as moonze. I am saying this because I want to show the relationship of um, the crops, the seeds, the food, and the wider landscape. Where would these sticks come from if we do not protect the forest and the mountains? Where will we get the winnowing baskets if we do not protect the wetlands and the forests? So this is the kind of relationship that you find that as you bring back uh, the millet, it reflects on the wider ecosystem. You can't go to do the rituals to protect the sacred sites if you do not have millet. And so by bringing back millet, you bring back a whole lot of other institutions, but you inevitably have to speak to the wider landscape because you need that as part of the actual processing of the millet itself. But the importance of wild spaces and their food system is not just based around ceremony. For these communities in Bikita, it is the difference between having food to eat in the hungry gap or not. As we were going through this revival process also and noticing some gaps that were coming up, like the loss of trees, and some of these trees are actually wild fruit trees. The relationship again is when you are waiting to harvest a millet, there are some fruits that are found in the world in between. And the hardest time for the farmer is that time when you are waiting for the harvest. That is the hardest time. Food that has come from the previous harvest is finished and you are looking forward to the new harvest. And this is the time that the wild fruits come in to fill in the gap. So as we speak and share and remember these things and bring back the millets and all this, we also bring back the memories of seeing that actually there is a place 
on our food system of the wild fruits and wild foods and vegetables on the mountains, on the wetlands, in the forest. And inevitably, we speak about how to protect the wider landscape for those fruits and wild foods and vegetables to come back abundantly again. The transition away from millet and towards maize has had an effect on not only the land, but on the health of the community too. Millet is labour intensive. Right from the way, from the day you plant it, up to the time it is food that lands on your tongue. It's labour intensive, right through. And so, with the coming in of maize, life became easy. And so, why not go for the easy things? The, the dietary preferences have also shifted over the time. As people got used to maize, white pup, white pup. When I grew up, we would eat white pup, that is from maize, only in drought situations where our harvest wasn't enough and we were having to be forced to buy millennium from the shops. That's when we would eat uh, the white pup. Otherwise, the staple then was just either gray or brown. But these eating habits changed over time. And yet now they are changing to go back to that place. And I'll give you an example of a, a certain woman who in the 37 years that she was married in Mamuta, she had never grown finger millet. And she started growing it in 2016. Unfortunately, I say unfortunately, and then I say fortunately, because in 2017, she fell sick. She went to the doctors everywhere. And eventually she was diagnosed with diabetes and other related um, uh, health issues. And, and she was recommended to eat Sazareru uh, Kweza, pap from finger millet. And she came to me and she said, this is just coincidental that when I've started planting this, then this becomes my staple because of my health condition. And it's, it's growing more and more that elderly people are, are falling sick. When they get diagnosed of uh, these uh, lifestyle diseases of blood pressure, uh, diabetes and, 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 and so on, they are being encouraged to go back to those foods. So there's a complementarity here from the health side uh, and also from what the land itself can manage and also given the climatic conditions. It's like this revival is being complemented from all fronts, I'm telling you. There is no choice. This is the thing to do. It's not out of choice anymore. So resilience to climate change is uh, actually helping nutritionally. In reweaving their health and social practices with their seeds, their land and the world's landscapes around them, the communities of Bikita are becoming more and more resilient in fighting against external threats, from climate change to industrial exploitation and mining, 
which have worked to dismantle and fragment their communities for decades. And the vision of this continuing is only becoming stronger. The vision I have is the vision I share with the elders um, and the leaders in the community. We need to bring back the forests. We need to bring back the grasslands. We need to bring back all our seeds. So these days, we need to bring back our diversity on the cultivated land. And we need to bring back our diversity on the wider landscape. As we do that, as we bring, as we protect the grasslands, as we protect the forests and the mountains, our rivers will respond. Our rivers are full of sand. We do not have fish anymore. We do not have those pools anymore. Water is running everywhere. When the cyclone came, last year in March. Thank God it wasn't as severe as it was in other parts of the country. But even then, some people lost a quarter of their land. This is what Chief Mamunze says. And I have a record of his, uh, of his uh, words. He said, some people will be left with no land to cultivate. Why? Because the galleys are taking all the, the land away. Where there was a field, now it's a garden. And this is what we need to stop. This needs to be a community initiative. It cannot be uh, ethnos work. It wants every, everyone to come back. We need to come back to that space again where once we were one. And what affected one affected all of us. And when we come to that place, we can collectively protect whatever we wish to. And this is the vision that I have. It is the vision that I share, but it's the same vision that the elders share with me too. And this will ultimately protect us as the custodians and inhabitants of that land. The work of Method and the communities in Bikita is inspiring, teaching us that we all have an equal responsibility for ourselves, for each other, and for the land and food that nourishes us. By focusing our efforts on strengthening our local communities and landscapes, this helps build a broader picture of diversity which means that together we become more resilient against the ever-increasing threats of climate disasters, health pandemics and the multiple crises that face us today. Join me next time as we take a look at what this looks like in the context of the UK. This episode is in collaboration with Earth Law and the Gaia Foundation. Check out their social media and website to find out more. A huge thanks to Hal Rhodes and Method for their contributions towards this episode. Thank you for listening to Frontline Food. If you like what you heard, please subscribe and review on Spotify or iTunes. Follow Frontline Foodcast on Instagram and Facebook, or head to the website to find out more. Frontline Food is written and produced by me, Georgie Styles, 
Music contributions by Ollie Barton Wood, Shadow Flute and Owen Shires, and logo designed by Holly Champion.